Well, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Thank you, Nathan, for reading that for us. As I said, we're going to venture away from Romans 4 in, in light of the fact that it's Father's Day, and it's also going to help us with the applied part of applied anthropology. And we're looking at creation and culture on, on our Sunday evenings, and we're going to make applications for that in... Uh, in, in real life, and the topic of fatherhood is a perfect opportunity to, uh, to do that. And if you've been with us on Sunday nights, we've looked at the counterfeit uh, view of origins, which is naturalism and evolution. And last week, we walked through the, the Creator's testimony that's in Genesis 1. It's, it's described uh, from the one who was actually there, uh, who actually did it. And tonight, we're going to look at the crown of creation, God intentionally and personally makes mankind in his image and he made us male and female and then he gives specific commands in genesis he gave the commands to both men and women not just to men but to both to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it and then to have dominion over all things, all the things that God just created. And he blessed us. He blessed us with provision, and he blessed us with, with promise. It's, a, it's an amazing picture, amazing story. It's riveting, uh, filled with, 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 with intrigue. And one of the obvious questions that you might ask or someone else might ask is, if God made it that way and made us that way, then... Why is everything so messed up, right? I mean, where is this good creation that Genesis 1 talks about? Why are men not acting like men and women not acting like women? I mean, it's almost become a, a joke in some circles about we've gone so far in our day we don't even know how to define those, those categories. I mean, is male and female biological? Is it spiritual? Is it social? Is it some felt identity? I mean, in, in the world, why, why do some women care more about themselves than their, their children and their homes? Why, why do so many husbands, why would they rather look at a, a blue flashing screen with make-believe people than their own wives in flesh and blood? Why are children killing each other with, with no direction in life and their you know, the, the highest aim is to be a social activist or a social media influencer. Why are people in upheaval against authority, against parents, against teachers, against police? And the, and the short answer is rebellion toward God. It's the short answer. An article in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania uh, from 1992 encapsulates the sad attitude of our, of our culture. It noted 80% of those who drowned in the Titanic were men, many of who gave up their positions on the lifeboat for the women and the children. 80% of those who perished on the Titanic were, were men. And, and 100 years later, they, they, they did a poll and found only 35% of men in a similar situation, would relinquish their spot for women and children. And only 54% of them said they would do it for their own mother. Half said that they would do it for mom. That was 30 years ago. That was 1992, whenever that, that 
that article was written. Can you imagine those numbers today? There are over 70 million fathers in America. How important are they? The National Institute on Fatherhood found 72% of teenagers charged with murder and 70% of long-term inmates grew up without a dad. And you may listen to all of that and you could go on and on. I mean, I'm not telling you anything you do not know. You watch the news, hopefully not too much. And you see, is there any real solution? Obviously, what the politicians are offering isn't working. You just go from, from the Democrats to the Republicans to the Democrats to the Republicans. And I mean, is there any hope of riding the, the ship that's listing so bad now that, that, that you, you, you have a hard time even walking straight on the deck? I mean, and thankfully there is. It's, the answer is in the Bible. This is why worldview and creation is so important because while God created his world perfect, there was an event called the fall of man that, that marred creation beyond human repair. There, there is no answer with the politicians. And ever since then, we've been walking sideways or, or things are crooked that can't be made straight, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. The, the sin of man turned everything upside down. In Genesis 3, creation ruled over mankind, the the snake over Eve, the the woman ruled over her husband, Eve over Adam, and man refused to be ruled by God altogether. Adam checked out and disobeyed God's explicit command and then blamed God for it. But instead of destroying us like he should have done, this same God was good and gracious and he didn't leave us to wander aimlessly in our mess. He, he made a promise to redeem. And then he carried that out step by step through the Old Testament. And he finally came to us in the person of Jesus Christ to restore the image that was lost and, and to renew his creation, the creation that, that, that we fouled up. And one day God will bring about a, a new creation, the Bible says, where there is no sin or rebellion, where, where people are back in a perfect place, perfected people in a perfect relationship with a good and gracious God. And even now he's preparing us for, for that day. He's given us his spirit that lives within us as believers and his word, which has the power, both of those together, the spirit and the word has the power to progressively renew us into that image. And we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And we have a part to play in that. We we have a work to do in that. Uh, Salvation is monergistic. It's a work of God. You can't save yourself. You don't even want to. But sanctification, the growth that happens in the Christian life is synergistic. You cooperate with, with the Lord. You you labor, you strive, you read the Bible, then you obey, and, and he gives you the ability to do that through, through the power of his Spirit. And I want to show you that work related to the family in the book of Colossians. So Colossians chapter 3 contains God's instruction for everyday living. It, it contains the application of the truths that we're going to learn tonight about, about men and women. And Colossians begins with the Apostle Paul giving thanks to God, like he does always. He thanks God for his salvation that he brought to the, to the Colossian believers that, that had come to them through the gospel. And then he encourages them to continue to, continue to walk in that faith. Um, he says in Colossians 2, 6, as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
So walk in Him. As you've received Him as Lord, you now walk that way. You Basically, you've understood that He's God and now you follow Him. And he echoes that sentiment all through chapter 1. You're right, He is Lord. He created all things. He All things exist in Him and for Him. And so now that your eyes have been opened to that, live like it. Follow Him. He's not just your get-out-of-hell-free card. He's your master. Don't don't fall to counterfeit religious options that are out there that are are tempting to make you think it'll help you control your flesh. And after reminding of that, he he then turns in chapter 3 to specific ways in which we live, specific ways in which we now... With our eyes being open to Christ being Lord, we, we orient our lives, we, we, re, we reorient our lives to, to God's ways after we have we've strayed away. Look at 3.1, Colossians. Set your mind on things above, but n- not on the earth. Or keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, in verse 2. I mean, he says, don't look here for direction for your lives. That's what a lot of people do. It's why everything's so messed up. Look to Christ. How do you look to Christ? Is some mystical being up in heaven? No, you look to Christ right here in His Word. This is the written Word that reveals the, the, the living Word. You are once dead in sin, but now you've been made alive in, made alive in Christ, and, and you're now dead to the world. So put off what remains of that old life that you used to live that's contrary to God. And then he shows us what that means with this list that Nate read for us, this list of attitudes and actions, this put off and and put on. Look look if you would at verse 8. He says, But now you also put them all aside, anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Did you do any of that before you came to the Lord? Yeah. Don't lie to one another. Since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices, that old way of life, and you've put on a new self, watch this, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And there's the goal. That's what God's doing. It's your goal that you're participating in the Lord with. You're participating in that work by following these commands. Christ is bringing about the renewal of the image of the one who created you that was marred in the fall. And you participate in that process of change by renewing your mind and then changing your actions. And you go to God's Word for the knowledge of how it's supposed to be and then you put off what doesn't line up and then you put on what what, what should. I mean, Paul in a nutshell is saying receiving Christ Jesus as Lord ought to make a difference in your life, especially in daily life like our marriages, and like our families, and like the way we work, and why we work. So in verses 18 through, through chapter 4, verse 1, Paul shows us how, how Christ makes a difference in all those areas. This section is called the, the, uh, the hostophon as Luther described it. It was the household tables or rules. It's the new home that Christ builds or the changed life that manifests itself in these most intimate circles. I mean, if Jesus is now God, if He's now your Lord, don't you think that that, that 
The very first place that you ought to be transformed is in your attitudes and your actions internally. And then the next place you ought to be transformed would be in your marriage. And then the next place you'd be transformed would be the way you parent in your children and then in your workplace. I mean, you see how it, it starts inside and then works out in these, these, these intimate circles of, of life. And Paul summarizes it with the statement in verse 17. Here's a summary statement, verse 17 of, of chapter 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the the Father. It's an overarching statement that gives the way then to instructions on basic human relationships. Verse 18, wives, and verse 19, husbands, and verse 20, children. Verse 21, fathers, and verse 22, slaves or employees, and it moves on. You want to know what a man or a woman is supposed to look like? How to be a good spouse or a good parent? How to carry out your employment in a way that pleases God? Or here, right here it is. In verses 18 through the very first verse of chapter 4, he gives instructions for all these relationships which are the most common to, to life. And if you follow these helpful and happy guidelines, these relationships can be successful even in a, a sin-cursed world. And on the flip side, if you don't follow them, you'll find even greater pain and more difficulty than you're already experiencing. Because these people basically have two problems, what I hear all the time. They don't know what to do, or they know what to do, but they, they don't have the ability or the power to carry it out. And neither of those are true for a Christian. God says Christ has supplied everything that you need, all things that you need for life and godliness. And, and Colossians 3, 18-4-1 teaches us how to live. I mean, the outline is very straightforward. There's three spheres of relationships addressed here. Husbands and wives in verses 18 and 19. Fathers and children in verses 20 and 21. And then employees and employers in verses 22 through, through 4 one. We're only going to cover the first two. But if you follow this, it'll revolutionize these areas of your, your life. We'll call it two keys to the home that Christ builds. There's the counter commands in marriage, verses 18 and 19. And there's the, the aligning orders of the family in verses 21 and, and 22. Counter commands in marriage and aligning orders of the family. Verses 21 and, and 22. You'll get these as we go along if you don't write fast. The first one is the counter command in, in marriage. There is a proper orientation of the wife, and then there is the purposeful obligation of the husband. Look, if you would, at verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3. Wives... Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. There, there are actually three commands given here. Two to husbands and one to, to wives. And they are given counter to the commands or counter to our natural tendency that, that's, that's now in us due to the fall. Our sin nature presses against both of these commands, which is why they're not popular. 
Husbands are to love their wives and not be harsh to them, which is the temptation that fallen men have. They, they want to rule their wives with words. They don't want to love them with Christ-like action. Just do what I say and don't ask me questions about it. And wives are to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord, which, which is the opposite of their temptation. Eve's desire was to rule over her husband, not be under him, and question whether God had her best at heart, which is what led her down that, that bad path to begin with. Did God really say? And these commands describe the way that God designed it before sin. Loving husbands and helping wives. But Paul begins by giving a word to, these, to the wives first. And the command is aimed at the proper response to God's order. Verse 18, wives, be subject to to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. I mean, just even reading that verse in our culture today can drive people nuts. I mean, all of the, these house rules are, are not even options. They're, they're commands by God. I mean, meaning they're not just, they're not just cultural opinions, but, but what it takes to be obedient to Christ, to, to function properly in, in the home. And the Bible teaches that there's a beautiful harmony created in by, by the marriage union, a beautiful harmony. And some of you are sitting there saying, well, my marriage sounds more like my five-year-old practicing his recorder than a beautiful symphony. I mean, why? Well, each partner has a specific place, and each partner has a primary role. And God created them male and female, and He did that so that they would complement one another. And the wife's part in that relationship is to upatasso herself to her own husband. And this is fitting and proper in the Lord. She's to be subject. It's a compound word. It means to arrange yourself under someone. Hupo, under, tasso, to, to order. It, it means to put yourself under a delegated order. Uh, the order delegated by God. Not by compulsion, but willingly. And the Bible makes the voluntary part very clear. I mean... You're not subjected to your husbands, ladies. You, you submit to them, and it's a happy privilege. I mean, Paul could have used the same word that he does in verse 20. Look at verse 20. This is very close in proximity. Children, be obedient to your parents. That's hupo akuo, to listen under, to be under the words of another, meaning to obey, but... But Paul doesn't use that word here because the relationship between a husband and a wife is completely different than the relationship between a, a parent and a child. Men, your, your wife is not your child. And ladies, your husband is not your master. Men, your wives don't relate to you like your children. You're, you're not to command them, but you're to lead them. And if you ever get to the place where you are commanding them, then you can be sure you're out of line and and there's something very, long, very wrong. You're not fulfilling what God commands here. I mean, it really couldn't be any clearer. It's, it's all through Scripture. I mean, Ephesians is the longest passage of the New Testament dealing with the relationships between a, a husband and a wife. And Colossians, here you kind of have the distilled version. We read Ephesians 5 in, in, in wedding ceremonies. We don't typically read Colossians. This is, this is like the, the cliff notes. But they both say the same thing. A husband's proper response to the order that God has created is to lead or to be in headship to his wife. And the, 
proper response of a wife is to be subject to him. The Lord says that's how a Christian home is to operate in all cultures, in all times. It didn't change because of salvation. There are all kinds of cultural uh, pressures, I understand, to to erase those distinctions. Some are very overt and some are, are, are subtle. Men are being told to be more feminine. Women are desiring to be more masculine. And some people are being told that there's no such thing as gender at all. In all, They do that somehow saying that, that, that it indicates that similarity is, uh, you know, is a good thing. And differences means inferiority. But the Bible knows of no such thing. In fact, the differences in the designs is a way to, for God to display His, His, His glory and and, uh, be our, and our good. I mean, think of the variety of, of flowers. I mean, a rose is a beautiful thing. You get to marvel at it. But God made all kinds of them. And, and you don't say, well, well, this one's inferior to that one. You, you, you marvel at God's beauty because he's, he's created differences there. And the same thing for foods and the same thing for colors and all kinds of other things. Scripture not only draws the lines between between after its kind, animals after its kind. He not only draws those lines in permanent marker, but he does the same thing between men and women. And God calls it good and ordained. And it also declares that these differences are, are not competing with one another. They're, they're, they're part, of, part of creation. Uh, Matthew 19, we looked at this before, where Jesus actually refers to creation, God's creative intent. He answered the Pharisees, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but but one flesh. And God is the one that joins them. And and that's not just in the the covenant ceremony, but but in the design. God joined them. he, he, He created them to fit together. And there's no superiority or inferiority here. I mean, the Lord quotes Genesis 1.27 and declares that both are made in God's image and yet different. Men and women are spiritual equals. Both have the same capacity to serve God as image bearers. Scripture speaks to both of them. As as I said, the commands to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion and serve the earth or subdue the earth is not just given to the man. It's given to both image bearers. Peter says that your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She's an equal heir to all what the, that you have. And Jesus Christ was a ransom for all the descendants of Adam. He didn't share, shed extra blood for men or, or for women. And God planned the peculiar ways that women are different from men. And these distinctions are intentional. They're premeditated. They're, they're calculated by a wise creator before the fall. And like many aspects of God's creation... They have differing roles and, and functions. And that's nothing new. It's nothing new to you. The greatest example is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. who was part of the Godhead, equal with God, an equal person in the Trinity. And yet He subordinated Himself in function to the Father. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the, of the world. And the Son obeyed the Father. They're equal, but completely different function. Because He has a different role to play in salvation. Likewise, men and women have different roles in life, the life that God 
has created. And you don't need stick figures on a bathroom door to figure that out. I mean, even the word, um, uh, the Hebrew word for woman from Genesis 3.23 means from man. And, and it's derived from the word that, that has to do with softness. I mean, First Peter speaks of a woman's frame being a weaker vessel, not not meaning in, in inferior, but just that generally God made women in a, in a way that they possessed less physical strength than, than men. They possessed more of other things, but less physical strength. They're different physically in body shape, function, and frame. And God designed Adam to have a frame to keep and work the earth, and Eve designed to be an able helper. There's a different time of creation. Men first, then women. There's a different task in creation. Woman for man. But then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but, but don't get the big head because all men come from a woman. <laughs> they brought you into this world and they can take you out, as your mother will remind you, right? <laughs> Paul says something very clear here. Wives are equal, but under their husbands in function. They're equal image bearers and they are to range themselves under their husbands, out of obedience to the Lord, not to Him. You say, well, my husband is not worthy. Well, he's not. You're exactly right. I mean, even good one is not worthy. Um, but you don't do that because he's worthy. You do this because the Lord's worthy. They're heirs of life. So the key to understand the design, I think, for you women, is to remember the three words, under, it's voluntary, and it's because of God or in obedience to God. That's why it says it's fitting to the Lord. It means it's proper in the Lord. This is what a Christian woman does. God designs it. God designed it so you arrange yourself properly, and, and, and that's fitting. But there's also a purposeful obligation to a husband. Purposeful obligation to a husband. Look at verse 19. Two commands to us. Verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. I mean, just as wives are commanded to do what has become contrary to their flesh after the fall, husbands have a similar command as well. This is contrary. These things are, are contrary to our fallen nature. Men are to love their wives by patterning their leadership after the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word that is used here is the very familiar word agape. The Lord Jesus agapes the church, and you are to agape your wives. That's a tall order, and you know that. I've heard many people say, the bar is so high I can never reach it. So why even try? Men, you can, you can fulfill this command. It's imperfect, but you can fulfill it imperfectly with God's resources. And, and this love that he describes here has a has a definition, it has an object, the love has an object, and the love has an example. You're not left to try to guess what this is. Scripture is very clear. I mean, it's a love that, a love that is defined by God, not by you. Love's not a feeling. It's a Christ-like devotion. Agape is not passion, it's not emotion. There are other Greek words that that could be used for that, although both of those may be present in, in this kind of love. You, you may love your wife and passionately express emotion. 
But if those are the only things that, that you are, you're not fulfilling this command. Love is not some chemical reaction or cupid dust that, that floats around bringing attraction. Love potion number nine or whatever the movie is. It's, a, it's an expressed obligation in your covenant to her. You've made a covenant with her. She's the object of that love and there's an expressed obligation where you're continually pressing toward her and what you have committed. The verb is, is again, it's an imperative and it's in the present tense. It's something that you continually do. Her obligation to you in the covenant is to place herself under your care and your spiritual direction. And your obligation to her is to have an active and unceasing commitment to her well-being. She's the object of your agape. And that can be expressed in many different ways. Providing for her, listening to her, moving that old copier out of the basement that sat down there for two months and still needs to be moved and is the first thing on my list next week. If you love your wives this way, men, she'll enjoy your leadership. She won't find it as some oppressive yoke or burden. If she feels safe in your commitment to her, she'll easily place herself under your direction. Because this love has an object. I mean, Ephesians 5, 28 and 29 is a verse that you know well. This is the, this is the, the, the wedding verse. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. It's not all of it, but that's the, the heart of it. I mean, in the home that Christ builds, Christ is Lord. I want a home now that operates the way that God says because he knows better than me. What does that look like? Love has an object and love's object transfers from yourself to your wife. Marriage is not about you. And this verse says that we have a built-in competition, as men and women do too. But God's speaking to men now. That's why it's difficult to obey this command. You, you care about yourself more than you care about your wife or others. You ever wonder why the Lord is, is saying uh, loving your wife is... It's like loving yourself or no man ever hated his own flesh. I mean, what, what does that even mean? I mean, it's because God knows that, that that's the natural competition that you have, that we have. Our sin nature cares more about ourselves than we do others. And you're to love your life, uh, love your wife like, like your own body. She's part of you. Be as committed to her as you are to yourself because you're now one. You you see her that way, then you'll love her that way. Because no man ever hated his own body. And this love has an example to follow. God defines what it is. She's the object and Christ is our model. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He cared more for for you than he did about himself. That's what he's commanding men to do. In the same way Christ loved the church, he gave himself completely, wholly for her. He gave himself in every way for the church. He gave his body to be beaten and crucified 
He went without physical comforts of food. He didn't have a house to live in during his earthly ministry. Birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He did that for the church. He gave away his rights for the church. I mean, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, uh, uh, Christ Jesus being in the, being in the form of God, um, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, the King James says. It, his Godhood wasn't, the rights of his Godhood wasn't something to be grasped. He, he turned loose of those, being made of no reputation. He, he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And it goes on. I mean, Jesus left the, the worship of angels in heaven. He voluntarily laid aside his rights. He cloaked himself in human flesh and he walked as a man for the purpose of the church, redeeming the church, saving the church, dying. He gave himself emotionally. He sweat in the garden like great drops of blood. He, he cried with a loud voice, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? He wept of Jerusalem and, and Lazarus, all for the, for the purchasing of the church. And There's not a man that can attain that perfectly. But men, that's how you're to strive to love your wives. That's the example. That's the model. You're to give yourself physically for her in labor, for care and protection. You're to work to provide for her. You, you stand ready to guard her from harm. Willingly throw yourself in front of her if necessary. You're to give up your rights for her. Operating them in love means e even though they're granted to you, you don't always exercise the, them for her benefit. You're, you give yourself emotionally for her. I mean, leadership can be a, a burden to carry. And ladies, submission is not a curse. It's, it's a privilege. I mean, think of how the Lord leads us. Slow to anger, compassionate, patient. Is that how you lead in your homes, men? Slow to anger, compassionate, patient. Has the Lord ever had to tell you something more than once? <laughs> you try a hundred times and counting. He leads us consistently and faithfully. Men, that's our target to aim at, and it takes God's grace. But here's the, ta here's the task, here's the target. But there's another key that reaches beyond, beyond marriage. It's the aligning orders given to the family. Here's the second key to the home that Christ builds. It's the aligning orders to the, to, to the family. Verses 21 and 22. Children are to line up under authority. And fathers are to, to bring up unto Christ. If you would, at verse 20, it says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 6, this is the, Colossians is the truncated version. Ephesians 6 is the parallel passage, and it adds more. It actually adds the, a quote from the law and a promise. Look at Ephesians 6 on your screen. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Same thing Colossians says. Honor your father and mother. Where's that from? The Ten Commandments, which is the first commandment with promise. Here's the promise. What's the result of learning to honor your father and mother doing that? So that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And in my home, I was taught that that last part was literal, right? Honor your father and mother so you'll live a long time. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So in the new home that Christ builds, children are to live under the authority that God has created, and fathers who represent that authority are to act as if it's delegated from God. So you're, you're ushering them to Christ. You're not creating your own little fiefdom here. You're not the king of your castle. You are a, you're a delegate of God. These children are not your own. And you, you're to take them and hand them off. You're, you're moving them along with this delegated uh, uh, authority. And, and ladies, you're not left out here. Mothers, I think he addresses fathers because he just got done saying that they're the, the, the heads of their home. And so both parents can apply the principles that, that are here, but it's directed at, at Adam. Adam, where are you? And again, the verb is an imperative, which is a command. And the first one is given to the technon, or the, the, the children. Children, technon, it's a general word for a child. Now, we've made childhood really complicated and difficult, and you've got the different you know, uh, ages of development, and there are, no doubt, different ages of development where a child learns this or that, but you have the age of adolescence, and then you have 18, whenever magically you flip the switch, and they are able to have brains and do everything that they're supposed to do, and then 20 year, 21, they're old enough to go take an intoxicant and be responsible with that. Um, that's the world's view. Well, this is a general word for a child. It, it, it doesn't give a, an age. It doesn't say 13, the bar mitzvah. It doesn't say 18. It's a speci- it doesn't give a specific age. It encompasses any child still living in the home. Any child that would be under the authority of parents. How long are you under the authority of your parents? You're under the authority of your parents as, as a delegated authority until you're out from under them, meaning now you're operating on your own. You're moving out of the house. So it doesn't say that you treat a 17-year-old the same as your 5-year-old. That primarily has to do with them, not this word, though. I mean, the pattern that you see in Scripture is a person in authority gives more and more responsibility, more and more freedoms to someone who's under authority as they prove that they can handle it, which in turn then brings more liberty and more responsibility. And if you can't handle responsibility, then it doesn't matter how old you are, your liberty will be restricted. I mean, just ask the person in prison or the other, ask the guy who has his license revoked for for speeding. It doesn't matter how old you are, this principle is the same. You abuse the authority that is given to you, the responsibility, the freedoms that is given to you, you can't handle that responsibly, they'll be restricted. And as I mentioned before, the, the word here is a different word from the command to wives, the wives to husbands. This one is obey. It, it means to hear under. It means to come under what your parents say, to listen and come under what they say. It's a word that that echoes, again, probably what your mom said to you. You have two ears and one mouth for a reason. And if your ears don't work well, there's an age-old remedy that is applied somewhere else that will magically open those ears and allow you to listen. And a young person under the authority of their parents is to listen. They're to come under what they hear. In the Old Testament, the word hear 
was equated with obeying. And we've talked about this before, but when God gave the Shema, what the the Jewish people still recite every day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I mean, he's not just saying, listen to that like a song. Let, let, let those words fall upon your ears. He's saying, listen and do what I say. Hearing God is obeying God. It's, it's aligning yourself under his words and walking in his word and doing what he says. Hupa akuo, this word obey, has the same idea. It was used for the duty of a doorman. You know, the guy who stands there and waits for you to, 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 to walk up and he opens the door. Well, th- think of a door that, that doesn't have a window in it. The duty of a doorman back in those days, his task was to listen for the knock. And at the knock, then his job was to open the door. And when your parents speak, you, you come to the door and you listen to what they say. Their, their orders is the knocking and then you open the door. You let those orders walk in. You, you, do, you do what they say. And your attitude is that as a child, under their authority, you stand ready like, like, like a porter. This, again, this is a general principle. And you don't treat a five-year-old like a 17-year-old, and there's that process of transferring and, and those type of things. But this is a general principle. You remember the Sunday school song. Obedience is... The very best way to show that you believe, doing exactly what the Lord commands and doing it grumpily, is that what it says? Happily. This verse also gives us the extent of the command. Look at verse 20. Children, arrange yourself under the words of your parents in all things. There's the extent of the command. Not only does it cover anyone who is under a parent's authority under their roof, but Ephesians says, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, and Colossians says in all things. I mean, your obedience to your parents is an obligation to God. That's what in the Lord means. This is well-pleasing to the Lord. And you obey them because you're obligated to, as one of God's children. and It's right to do that. It's proper. It's, it's well-pleasing to Him. You please God when you obey your parents. You displease God when you don't. It's that simple. And all things means what, when you think that they're right and whenever you think that they they're, they're don't. He's going to address parents in just a minute. But right now he's talking to, to the technon. Who your friends are and who they're not. Where you go and where you don't. While you're under their roof. You say, well, what if I disagree? What if I don't think they're being fair? What if they're wrong? Do I have any recourse? Do I have some appeal? Appeal, of course you do. You appeal to the authority that God's placed over you, your parents. And if you have wise parents, then they'll, they'll listen to you. But if you don't understand the reason that they've given, then, then that's, not a, that's not a right to disobey. And if they won't listen to you, then you have another court of appeals. You appeal to the one who placed them over you. It's God. You go to God in prayer, and you lay out your case before Him, And if you're right, and it would be good for you, then the Lord will prevail upon your parents. If not, you may be right, and the Lord may choose not to prevail, but it's for your good that He's teaching you something. So again, you trust this this good and, and sovereign God, but your obligation is to obey, not to rebel against them. 
And the only thing that's not included there is if they would ask you to violate God's word or do something illegal, which is obviously a violation of God's word, or being abusive. There's also a promised benefit of, of obedience. You remember Ephesians says this is the, the first command of promise. What does that mean? What does it mean that this command in the Ten Commandments says that there's, there's something inherent? If you obey this command, then there's blessing that, that comes, not just general blessing from God, specific blessing. You'll live long on the earth. What, what is that about? God declares obeying your parents, learning this, this authority and submission structure, obedience structure that, that happens in the home provides a foundation for you to live a prosperous and productive life. Or let me say it another way. If you don't get that down in your home to your parents, that, that they're, they're an authority and that you obey that authority, you arrange yourselves under their words. If you don't learn that there, you're going to have to learn that in life and it's going to be much harder. The consequences are, are, are much stiffer and much stronger than a spanking. A person who learns to obey their parents learns a foundational principle for living, and that will lead to great spiritual riches. As I said, children are not the only ones who have a responsibility in this matter. Look at verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, resulting in them losing heart, or so that they will not lose heart. So you have the aligning orders to fathers. Well, that's parents, fathers in the representational role here. Parents are to bring up their children unto Christ. It's a delegated authority. There's another parallel passage in Ephesians, fills it in a little bit more. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So since uh, children are to wait as a porter and... Wait to hear, to open the door. Fathers are to take care with that trust. Fathers to make his words God's words. They're to be brought up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. God's the ultimate authority. The reason that we do this is because God says so, because I'm under his authority too, which means that whenever you violate God's word, even with your children, you seek their forgiveness. You repent, you confess, you, you model for them what that looks like. That's disciplining them and... And, and training them. And again, it's not your authority. It's God's authority. It's a delegated authority. And you don't provoke them in that process. You don't exasperate them. That's the negative side. But you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the positive side. He says, don't do this, which is our natural inclination, sin nature, but do this. Provoking to anger and exasperation. They have the same result. It means to bring to the point of resentment. Literally, it says don't irritate to the point of breaking. One parallel, uh, it's not even a translation, but it's a, a paraphrase. It said stop nagging your kids. You ever done that? <laughs> yeah. Johnny, stop that. Don't do that. Hey, hey, stop that. Stop that. Come on now. How many times do I have to tell you? Stop that. Talk, 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 talk. And your child is some point stops listening. It's being contentious like a, like a dripping faucet. Being, being on them all the time. You can also be setting up unrealistic or unbiblical expectations. It's governing your homes beyond the text. 
creating things that they could never keep, that God never intended them to keep. It can also look like being a hypocrite. Do as I say, not as I do. It can be harsh, be a harsh taskmaster. And when you command like that without the heart of a shepherd, it's like law without love. It's like, a, it's, it's like putting your kids in a pole vault competition without a pole. Meet the bar. And I don't have the tools to do that. And that brings resentment, not only to your authority, but it can bring resentment to God's authority because you're a delegate. And you do that too much and it can exasperate them where they feel like, what's the use? And it can please them anyway. I can remember having a seminary professor that I haven't seen since seminary. So it's none that are attending here. But at the beginning of the class, he started like this. And I just want to tell you men, no matter how hard you study, nobody is going to get an A in this class. Because that's just to show you that you don't know uh, everything that you need to know and you can't learn it just in this one semester. Well, what do you think that did for me? You think I was striving to, to do well in that class? Uh, if the highest I can get to be, then that's what I'm aiming at. Don't take the heart out, which is the result of that kind of, of parenting. But it says, do bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. That's the positive command. Again, these are general commands. Bring them up means to provide. It means to instruct with tender care to shepherd them with ongoing tending. The means that parenting is not a single dose or a daily hammering until they get it, but a daily feeding and leading toward a godly goal. It's not accomplished like an immunization or in a moment, but over time like a shepherd feeds his sheep. And now all of you are sitting here, some of you are sitting here listening to this and you think, I am the worst parent in the world <laughs> because I fail at this all the time. And some of you children are sitting here thinking, that's exactly right, I do have the worst parents in the world. They tell me stuff that I don't want to do all the time. And you're both dead wrong. Parents, Isaiah 1 declares that you can be a perfect parent and still have rebellious children. Isaiah 1, 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. I mean, the Lord's speaking as a parent here. And if there was ever a perfect parent, it was God, right? And he had many wayward children. You were one of them until you came to Christ. You might still be one of them this morning. You might be drawing you to Christ. And most of you children, I say most because I know some of your testimonies and some of them, you did suffer greatly, great evils in this world. But most of you children have no idea what a really bad parent is. If your parents are feeding you and bringing you to church and not abusing you, you're far more blessed than the majority of children in the world, and you should rejoice. Be thankful for your mom and dad. But most parents go even far beyond that. So don't give up. It's not over. And if you're done already, don't beat yourself up. Christianity is a forward-looking religion, not backwards. Not even God can change the past, but God can use it. He promises to do so. God can fill the gaps that, that you left. 
He can even use them to to work His wonders. I mean, Israel's failures, Israel's wandering led to us as Gentiles getting the gospel. (laughs) Peter's denial led to his humble power at Pentecost. Peter's failure that the Lord knew was going to happen, that the Lord allowed, that the Lord restored, was purposeful so that Peter would then be equipped to be able to be the preacher at, at Pentecost. And all of these things are impossible to accomplish without the help of the Lord. And you will continually fall short of the glory of God, which is why all of your standing is firm and fixed in the perfect, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's where you look, and that's where God looks, rather than to your failures or, or mine. And yet it's Christ who puts the keys like this in our hand and then gives us the power to turn it. You want to simplify it? You don't need Dr. Spock, you need Jesus. Amen? And if you have Him, and you're failing or you're stumbling, you might need to come back to some of these simple things and just be faithful and trust Him to bring the fruit. But if you're in rebellion to God's Word then don't be surprised if there's bitter fruit in your relationships, in your home. Let's pray. Father, there are wives here who don't feel loved. There are parents here who don't feel obeyed, their husbands who don't feel submitted to, their children who feel exasperated, and I pray that you would give them hope by your word, that you would change all of that, Lord. I am so thankful that whatever we've done and wherever we've been, you take us as we are, and you don't leave us there, you change us. And you are restoring the image that was torn down in the fall, And we do long for the day when we will be in a perfect place, new creation, in perfect people, in perfect relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray for all of us today, in particular the one that might be listening that's outside of Jesus Christ, that's never repented and believed, and maybe the difficulties that are coming even right now are there that they might look to you. Would you be gracious and kind as you always promised to be. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.